Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning and welcome. Glad you're here, whether you're watching live, on demand later, or years from now, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, whether you attend Sanctus or not, whether you live in Canada or not, welcome. Welcome to week two in this mini-series exploring one of the foundations of Sanctus Church, one of our biases, our starting points that actually influences the rest of our ministry, how we act, how we think, how we pray, how we plan. And we've labeled it Convergence. Now, like I shared last week, convergence is when three unexpected things sort of come together. Spiritual gifts, spiritual disciplines or holy practices, and the unusual work of the Holy Spirit called revival. These three things converge together to form an authentic Christian life. And as I've shared so many times before, Jesus modeled all three of these factors, even though he is and will forever be God. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come to be our Savior. He's not just our Lord, a better master. He also modeled while he was on earth what an authentic, normal Christian life would look like that we can actually participate in and imitate. Now today, I want to dive in and begin to unpack the unexpected part of this conversation, the unusual, the non-guaranteed part of this. I want to talk about revival. I teach at a seminary in Toronto. A middle-aged woman put up her hand in the middle of class. This class was on spiritual conflict, a very different topic than what we're talking about today. She was Christian reform or Dutch reform in background, not charismatic at all. And she told a story about a very dark time in her life. And a friend of hers who was way more charismatic than her came and prayed for her. And during that time of prayer, uh, her friend put her hands on her, and then she get, began to shake like a leaf, which really scared the other woman. But her friend's prayers were not just insightful. She actually knew stuff about the woman that she had told no one else. And the information brought healing and humility. It didn't humiliate her at all. And it, Sorry, it brought healing and humility, but it did not humiliate her, and Jesus moved profoundly. The student who was dialoguing with me and the rest of the class asked, how this could be. I mean, she had grown up in a, in a church that sort of downplayed direct involvement from God in a personal situation, let alone the weird thing of all of that shaking. She's like, what the heaven was that, John? Well, we began to talk about spiritual gifts, and I talked about what a word of knowledge is, and that's a word of knowledge, and, and we began to unpack it, and the conversation was very helpful and very clarifying. But as we kept talking, I realized suddenly that she had presumed. I actually think the Holy Spirit prompted me to this point. I realized she presumed that if you had a, a power gift, like words of knowledge, then you had to shake for it to be real. She had fused the practice of a real gift with a non-essential, non-guaranteed experience. It wasn't so much the realization that God had shown up, but it was the way the gift was used, the way the knowledge was given that she was finding really difficult to process. And right in the middle of class, I, I said, hold on a second. Why are you presuming that you need to shake to have the gift of words of knowledge? And she said, well, I don't know. I, I just, it's the only time I've sort of seen it and experienced it. I, I just did. Okay, this really matters. This matters because the model or experience of an authentic spiritual gift with other factors, right or wrong, can become a stumbling block in recognizing a spiritual gift, walking in a spiritual gift, or accepting what God does through that person. The message can be lost by the way the messenger gives it. 
the message, the God-given, spiritually-empowered moment can still be lost by the way the messenger gives it. Now, as I was unpacking this, a much larger, more significant issue came up within me. What's the difference between gifts and disciplines and what's normal and what's guaranteed and what's not normal and what's unusual and what's not guaranteed? And what do we do with all those really weird, unusual experiences that are not spiritual gifts and not spiritual disciplines but sometimes happen to followers of Jesus? Only sometimes, though. Now, if you read the Bible, because I started doing this, I started reading through the Scriptures with the lens of looking for these weird moments, this pattern emerged that I had missed my whole Christian life. Many people, not all, many people that knew God and loved God and lived for God and were faithful in good times, great times, and boring times, and terrible times, suddenly tend to meet God in a more profound, tangible, unexpected, and overwhelming way. The shepherds at Jesus' birth, Elijah on Mount Carmel, Isaiah's call, all of them are examples of heaven-touching earth, a foretaste of what will permanently come, but it's not guaranteed in the now but happened to some. So what do we do with this? Now, the water, modern word for this that we use in Christianese is revival. Revival, by the way, means to duplicate life. You have to have the life already, and it increases again in you. To have the God that we worship and give to and live for and speak about and speak on behalf of, suddenly he comes close to his people with such power, with such palpable presence that the lives of people, then the life of the church, are so radically changed that the non-Christian community connected to and around that church and those people suddenly start having dramatic encounters and conversions themselves with a God that they were or were not even looking for. Listen to just two simple definitions of revival. It was Stephen Olford who said that revival is a sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to faith, repentance, and obedience. Duncan Campbell simply said it's a community saturated with God. Now here at Sanctus Church, because we talked about this last week, language matters. Agreed upon definitions matter. We use renewal different than revival, different than awakening. Renewal is when one person has a personal revival. They, they suddenly have a close encounter with God and they're transformed and they're already Christians. Renewal. Revival is when a whole church experience experiences that move of God. Awakening is when the community outside of the church, non-Christian community, suddenly starts encountering Jesus, mass conversions, and things change profoundly. Renewal, personal, revival, church-wide, awakening, outside of the church community. Now, here's where this matters for us. Revival and awakening are not guaranteed, like the spiritual gifts and spiritual disciplines. The first two are normal and expected, but revival is not normal, not expected, and not guaranteed. And this matters so much because, again, expectations can kill and shipwreck your faith. If you've been taught your whole life, revival will happen if you just pray more and beg more and fast more, and it doesn't happen. Either God's a liar, you did something wrong, or maybe the devil's stronger than we thought. Hmm. Many of us didn't have that upbringing. That's we who grew up in churches. I know many of you did not, for we who did. Others of us grew up where revival was never talked about. We should never expect anything at all. We should just deal with a powerless, non-encountered faith. So what do we do in the middle? Well, one of the best passages that outlines God's unique work in this area is what we now call the transfiguration of Jesus. Okay, so let's get going this way. 
Just before the transfiguration, and by the way, you've got a Bible. Would you turn to the book of Matthew? We're going to be in Matthew 17. But just before this moment called the transfiguration, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. Peter, James, and John are others, and the others are with him. And he asks them a very direct question, which, by the way, every single human being is going to have to say, either on Judgment Day or before Judgment Day, and depending on your answer, it leads to life or death. And if you say yes on this side, it changes the trajectory of your life. Matthew 16, 13. For the seekers and skeptics listening, this is for you. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some, says, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, others say one of the other prophets. Yeah, 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 but what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, of course, spoke first. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a spiritual teacher, not just a political revolutionary, not just one incarnation of God, not just one great religious teacher among many, not just one path to God. Not, you're not crazy. You're not a liar. You're not Satan. You're not deceived. You don't have some extreme form of mental illness. You are the Messiah, the long-awaited one. Oh, and the Son of God. You are the only one that has seen God face to face because you and the Father are one. You existed before you were born. You've always existed. Whoa. Well, after the genesis of this confession, which has changed the world, rock the ages, which has brought hope to hundreds of millions, actually billions of us, and has been more offensive to billions more, in that moment, The Father and the Son and the Spirit, God himself decides to bring a season, a moment of revival. But interestingly, it's not even for all 12 disciples. It's only for three, Peter, James, and John. Matthew 17.1. This is where we're going to get going. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, again, if you're taking notes... After six days, you should circle that. I mean, God created all of reality in six days and then rested on the seventh day. And what's being linked here is creation and a new creation. See, a new thing's being formed through Jesus' perfect teaching and presence and perfect life and death and physical resurrection and ascension. A new creation is going to be established that will reconnect us with the God we lost in Eden. But there's more than just the creation connection. What's about to unfold is directly connected to Moses' personal encounter with God when he's given the Ten Commandments. And as we read Exodus 24 together, again, I want you to hone in on words like fire, cloud, glory. Exodus 24, 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you tablets of stone which, with, with the law and commands that I have written for their instruction. So Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud, not a cloud, not many clouds, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. Six days. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Okay, back to Matthew. Do you notice the pattern? Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain. God tells Moses to go up the mountain. 
But, but notice in both cases, God initiates. God leads them up. He starts the process. They don't even actually fully know where they're going. And in, in Peter, James, and John's case, they have no clue what's going to happen. Moses knew a little bit more. They don't know anything. They had just agreed to one thing. They would follow Jesus anywhere to any place. Well, they get up on the high mountain, and Luke's account of the transfiguration tells us they went to pray. They're going to practice the spiritual discipline of prayer. And I love how honest the Bible is, because as they started practicing the, pra- uh, the spiritual ha- holy habit of prayer, they, fa- they started falling asleep. <laughs> you ever had that experience where you're praying, and Lord, thank you so much for... <clears throat> spiritual gift of sleep, right. Just as in, in Luke 9.32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But then the same glory that Moses encountered is now going to be seen in Jesus. Sleep is replaced by all five senses being overwhelmed. And Matthew simply says in verse 2, there Jesus was transfigured before them. Now transfigured, transfiguration, what does that mean? Jesus was changed in appearance. The word transfigured is where we get our word metamorphosis from. He's transformed. He's seen in his heavenly splendor, fully human, fully God. These three get to glimpse Jesus as seen in heaven. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is manifest and revealed for the senses. One writes it like this. This transformation is not so much a physical alteration, but an added dimension of glory. It's the same Jesus but now with awesome brightness. And I love when he writes this. Peter's confession, you are the Christ, is now fully realized. So his face shone like the sun, verse 2, and his clothes became white as light. Mark says this in Mark 9, 3. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Lights coming from within Jesus, above Jesus, below Jesus. And never forget, God himself is the source of light. He's the creator of light. He is light. And this white, overwhelming, beaming light reminds us that Jesus is without sin. He is pure. That is why, again, seeker and skeptic, listen to this. This is why Jesus is so profound. He's not part of our problem. He's the solution to our problem. That's why he could die in my place and your place and deal with our pure impurity because his purity burns it all away. Amen, everyone? Right. So as Peter, James, and John look on, as their vision is adjusting to heavenly light, suddenly two others are standing with Jesus, the most famous in Jewish faith in history, the fathers of the faith, the ones that they had heard about probably in their mom's room. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, both leaders with Jesus, ended their lives in supernatural ways. Both of them personally talked to God on Mount Sinai. Moses is considered the great lawgiver and also the one who helped the people of Israel leave Egypt, the great Exodus leader. Elijah is the greatest miracle worker in the Old Testament. And by this time in Jewish thinking, he becomes the representation of all the prophets in the Old Testament. And here's what's being said here. These two who are literally there with Jesus are there to witness and to testify that the one between them is the fulfillment of all that they represent. The whole Old Testament, history, allegory, poetry, prophecy, was to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. The law, 
and the prophets show us our sin as human beings. The law and the prophets tell us who God is and his expectations. They show us our need for an external savior and they give us hope because they said someone would come to help us with our problem. And now they are here pointing. The one between them is the fulfillment of everything they did because Jesus is the God they met with now in flesh. And Jesus is gonna do greater miracles and is going to commit to the greatest exodus, the second exodus, where sin, death, and Satan lose forever and we're set free. How does Peter respond? He says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three tents, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. Now, let me just say this. I've preached this before. Let me do this again. Peter, James, and John are seeing more than any Jewish person has ever seen in history at this moment. This is the epic ultimate moment. Moses is right there. Elijah is right there. And the fulfillment of the Jewish faith is right there. And notice Peter goes a little far and I don't even think he fully understands what he's saying. He calls Jesus Lord, which is a name of God in the Old Testament. In confusion and excitement, Peter says, let's stay here. This is great. These, this is our prayers answered. We've wanted this revival our whole lives. Heavenly, the heavenly kingdom is like here. So let's just commune with you. This is what life is supposed to be. We don't want to go back to the mundane, the boring, the seven-day work week, COVID lockdowns. I don't want to go on the internet anymore. I don't know all the conspiracy theories and all the politics and the injustice sound familiar and family fights and Romans and war and dealing with disease and demons. And then Jesus, you keep talking about dying, dying, dying. We don't need to do this. We just need to live here. This is awesome. And notice the tents. Peter says, oh, I've got, I'll, I'll set up, you know, three of them. And Moses, Elijah, and, and Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God are equal, right? The tents are all beside each other. Oh, oh see, Peter's already missed it. These two epic leaders are here pointing to their creator. They're not even on the same level. So Peter's working on this strategic plan to camp forever and ever with Jesus and his heavenly posse in revival. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? And then another act of heaven interrupts his human invented agenda to stay in revival. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud, oh, see the connection? Enveloped them and a voice spoke from the cloud. Now, this cloud, I've shared this many times before, is called the Shekinah glory of God, the dwelling environment of God. The supernatural cloud is connected to brilliance, glory, fire, the overwhelming palpable presence of God. This is the same cloud and presence that Moses experienced at the giving of the Ten Commandments. But it's also the same cloud that led the people of Israel by day in the wilderness wanderings and the pillar of fire by night. It's the same cloud that when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, which we'll talk about later this spring, the cloud literally settled there. When Solomon dedicated the temple, that cloud showed up. It's the same overwhelming light and glory that Isaiah and Ezekiel encountered at their call to be prophets. It's the same overwhelming light that 
was around the angels with the shepherds in the Christmas story. It's the same fire that shows up in Acts 2 when the church is born on Pentecost and there are tongues of fire. It's the same glory and overwhelming light that Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian movement, when he looked up, he says, I see Jesus seated. There's this description of Jesus in this heavenly presence. It's the same glory and it's the same brilliant light that knocked Saul over, blinded him when he became Paul. The cloud is full of God's glory, light, lightning, and fire. And out of this cloud, the God the Father's voice speaks. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You listen to him. So you have the Holy Spirit in the form of a cloud, given to affirm Jesus' identity, ministry, life, death, resurrection, ascension. But again, we see God here in his fullness. The Holy Spirit is present in the form of the cloud. You have God the Father's voice, God the Son with flesh. You have the reality of one God yet found in holy community, Trinity, forever one God found in three persons, amen. God the Father says, you listen to him, you obey him. Oh, ready? And when the disciples, verse six, heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. In that moment, they know God is God and they are not. At that moment, they know their their own sin. And notice, this is critical. They have a physical reaction to the proximity of God. They go down. They fall down. This is not some like, oh, I'm going to kneel now. No, no. Boom. Down. They physically have an unusual physical reaction to the closeness of God. It's the same thing that Isaiah describes when he's... uh, Oh, undone in Isaiah 6, 5. Woe to me. I, I'm a ruin. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Okay, let's just pause. Years ago, G.I. Packer wrote a small book called God in Our Midst. And out of scripture and that of church history, he outlines every single time what happens in revival. He says, the very first thing that happens is there is an awareness of God's presence. The first and fundamental feature in revival is a sense that God has drawn awesomely near. Notice notice this. In his holiness, his mercy, and his might. Number two, there's a responsiveness to God's word. The message of the Bible, which previously made only superficial impact, if even that, now searches its hearers and readers to the depth of their being. Three, there's a sensitivity to sin. Consciences become tender and a profound humbling takes place. Suddenly there's liveliness in the community. Love, generosity, unity, joy, assurance, boldness, a spirit of praise, a spirit of prayer, and the passion to reach out to win others are reoccurring marks of renewed communities. Anyone think we need that in 2021? Oh, and then there's fruitfulness and testimony. Christians proclaim by word and deed the power of new life. Souls are one and the community's conscience becomes informed and Christian values begin to emerge outside of the church. Now, let's pause. Remember, we learned that God initiates this. So if God in his sovereignty wants to do this thing, he's the one who leads us up. The preparation for revivals is often marked when God gives a promise that we pray back to him. Then in his time, he sends his Holy Spirit, reveals himself fully. He moves from omnipresence to palpable presence. We as human beings, even as Christians, become terrified. We confess our sin. We know our need. Pain is exposed. Much of the time, 
if we let witness the history, the witness of history speak, there are also physical manifestations: falling over, shaking, weeping, trembling. Every time God moves in great power in the Scriptures, there tends to be a physical reaction. If you study church history, Edwards, Wesley, the Welsh Revival, just to name a few, they are full of unusual works of God, holy laughter, weeping, falling over. Does it always happen? No. Does it make you more spiritual? Oh, absolutely not. But when God moves very close, strange things happen. Let me take this a little farther, and I'll wrap this up later so you understand why I'm doing this. Who is Jesus' best friend on earth? was John, John the disciple. And think about who John is. I mean, John was with Jesus from the beginning. He walked with him, feeding 5,000, yep, casting out legion, yep, all of it, right? He was there at the transfiguration. He was there when Jesus died. He's the one holding Mary in his arms when Jesus is crucified and basically takes over taking care of her. He was there, resurrection, yep, Ascension, yep, he writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, becomes a major church leader in Ephesus, and years and years later, at 90 years old, is still serving Jesus, is persecuted, and he's exiled in his late 80s, early 90s to where? An island called Patmos. And he's worshiping on a Sunday morning by himself in lockdown. Hmm. And Jesus appears and gives him the book of Revelation. Watch what happens when Jesus' best friend in a glorified state shows up again. At Revelation 1, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. I want you to, again, picture this. A 90-year-old senior citizen going down before Jesus. He didn't just lay down. He fell down. He had a physical reaction to the proximity of the divine. Boom, gone. So weird isn't always wrong. And yet, <laughs> during real moves of God, genuine revivals, we still make fleshy mistakes. And even though God is working and the weird even might be okay, what we do with it can be wrong. And John, other than Paul, probably one of the best theologians, himself makes some mistakes. <laughs> Not once, twice. This is after he falls over. Uh, it says in Revelation 19.9, the angel who was giving him this said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And at this I fell down and worshiped the angel. And the angel said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Stop this. You think he'd learn his lesson? No, no. Revelation 22, 8, I fell down and worshiped the feet of the angel who had been showing me this. And he said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. So the encounter was from God. The actions were from God. Now, of course, this is revival plus getting scripture. But the point is his reactions at that point were still wrong. But those wrong actions don't devalidate the work of God. Okay, back from Revelation, back to the transfiguration. So, how did it all end? Verse 7, Jesus came and touched them. Get up, don't be afraid. It's interesting Jesus keeps saying that, isn't it? 
And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Moses, gone. Elijah, gone. Glory, cloud, gone. Father's voice, gone. Just normal shows up again. And if you read Matthew 17 and 18 well, it's really interesting. They go back down the mountain and back to a lack of faith and they can't cast out a demon and there's all this politics and all this stuff. And, but this changed them forever. Okay, John, why are you saying all this? Here's why. As we are learning and have learned, spiritual disciplines, fasting, solitude, silence, etc., are to be exercised in any season of life by any Christian that was modeled by Jesus to be transformed by him and to learn to listen to the Father like he did. Spiritual gifts are sovereignly assigned by the Holy Spirit. They're normal day in and day out. They only lose power when we grieve the Spirit. They're never taken away, we just grieve them. But revival is not normal, is not always, and neither are the results and or the manifestations. Much of the time during revival, there is great power and presence of God, which means the disciplines are used more, and there might be even an umph, an increase in the power of spiritual gifts. But revivals tend to be started by God and ended by God. Otherwise, we'd all just want to live in revivals all the time and avoid life. The seasons of revival are given to send us out, sustain us over a lifetime, and usually, if you read church history, to prepare local churches and leaders to do the next thing. But what we may not do is pair one experience with the other two. Sometimes revivals last for days. Sometimes revivals last last for months or years. Now, here at Sanctus Church, between 2011 and up to the beginning of 2016, there were genuine large waves of personal renewal, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of accounts of that, and then a real moment, actually two moments of revival where the Spirit of God poured it across our church. Now, should we ask again for this? Yep. Should we expect God to move? Yes, absolutely. But wonder if he says no. Wonder if he says not yet. That doesn't affect the gifts. That doesn't affect the disciplines that Jesus modeled. This should help all of us with our expectations about manifestations and outworkings. The distinction is not abstract. On one hand, many, many churches that did actually experience a real work of God in the past keep trying to replicate it, and that becomes fleshy and sinful, and it collapses. You have to accept when the time is done and go back to what we around here call common faithfulness. Acts 2, 42 through 47, Matthew 28, disciplines and gifts, just being faithful. Can God do something new? Of course. But here's the hmm moment. Many more of us, even in Sanctus Church, have never asked in years or never asked at all to see if Jesus wants to take our whole church or you up the mountain to experience revival for the first time or again. Why? Because of fear and ungodly control. Well, I don't want to fall over. I don't want weird things to happen to me. uh, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought he was good, everyone. My point is there is one set of experiences and overarching expectations for revival. And there is another for everyday ministry. For a time, if God chooses, they confuse together. Yes, but not necessarily. It would be wise for us to all understand this and never confuse these factors so our expectations are not too low or too high. Our expectations have to be anchored in Jesus in Scripture who never disappoints. But again, here's the process. The first thing all of us must be willing to do is be led up the mountain by Jesus. That's our only part. 
And lots of us are not even willing, though we are followers of Jesus and done lots with Jesus, we're not willing to do that because of fear and ungodly control. In other words, trust. If God sovereignly moves, he leads us up. He'll fully reveal himself. We will become terrified. We will know where we've committed sin in a way we've never known before. We will know our need. Pain will be exposed. The Holy Spirit will come in great power. The cloud, the fire, the dove will, for an extended period of time, do extraordinary things in our community. And then there will be unusual experiences that will have to be worked out. And our prayer is then that many, many more would accept Christ. Okay, so what do we do with all this? Three things. Number one, every single one of us committed to Sanctus Church needs to, again, in prayer today, say to God, I am committed to common faithfulness. I am committed to being faithful to Jesus. I'm committed to a holy life. I'm committed to spiritual disciplines. I'm committed to using my spiritual gifts. That's the first one. Same, you're like, I don't know my spiritual gifts. Don't worry, that's next week. The point is, you just commit. Number two, the whole church, all of us at Texas Church also need to commit to Jesus that we're willing to go anywhere he takes us, including up the mountain. That we would surrender, and you can put these both in your hands almost, fear and ungodly control because supposedly he's good. And third, we should ask for revival. So let's pray about the first two things and then let me end. So Lord, first of all, as a church community, one small church out of millions around the world, we want to commit right now in 2021 that we are committed to the Lordship of Jesus, to the will of God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we just want to be faithful. So we want to be holy people. Help us to live holy lives in a very unholy culture. Number two, help us just to be faithful in using disciplines and gifts in serving. Just we commit that now in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Here's a second commitment. Jesus, we want to be open to where you want to lead us. So, and you just take your hands out right now if you want to do this. Put fear in one hand and ungodly control in the other. We give you our fear and our ungodly control. And we just want to follow you. You do what you want for your glory, for our freedom so the world can see you clearly. Just, we'll follow you. And my prayer right now as one pastor across this church is that you'd begin to confront and disassemble fear and ungodly control in Jesus' name across Sanctus Church. And we all said together, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, do we need revival? Well, let me just do the summary. In this moment of alternative facts and lies, in this time of echo chambers and algorithms telling us only what we want to hear, in a time of injustice that goes in multiple directions, which makes it even more complicated, in this time of cancel culture and unforgiveness, in this time of political hatred, in this time of online decay, in this time of mistrust, in this time of lockdowns, in this time where I'm noticing a uh, a huge uptick in lack of honor and lack of submission, in this time of hidden sin, in this time of arrogance and rebellion, in this time where we as created things keep telling our creator we know better 
In this time of church decline, as we are preparing for one out of 10 churches or more to be gone by Easter, in this time of political and church abuse and scandal, in this time of growing hopelessness and despair, do we need a revival? Yes. We sure do. I'm not doing this uh, for effect, but I'm just going to take my shoes off before we pray this last thing. Because every time people meet with God in the Bible, they would take off their shoes because they're on holy ground. Maybe you want to do that wherever you might be. And here's what I'm just going to pray. God, God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, one God. God of Israel, God of the church. Um, We've prayed for revival in this church for years and you visited us many times. Thank you. But we would boldly like you to, we're going to boldly ask you during this lockdown moment, during this COVID moment, that you would visit Sanctus Church more, not less. That there'd be renewal in thousands of lives, revival would break out, and then we pray even more boldly for awakening to happen in the GTA in the most unexpected of ways. Uh, We need you to move, God. Um, It's even more complicated than it was 10 months ago. More dangerous, more divided. You're the only one who can cut through everything and tell the truth. You're the only one who can convict. You're the only one who can restore. You're, you're the only one who can reconcile. You're the only one who can bring you. You're the only one who can show the world what, what holiness and love look like. So we're just praying for our church, Sanctus Church. We pray for a real revival. Terrify us, knock us down, cleanse us, restore us so we can be sent out for the next assignment you're giving this, this church in our grand journey together. Uh, In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in front of God the Father, this is what we ask. And all of God's people said, Amen. 